welcome to episode 179 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. We're still doing our best of 2016 stuff. And I'm Brian Lovin, and we're still doing our best of 2016 stuff. And I'm Sarah Jackson. And guess what? We are still doing a best of 2016 episode. Episode two. This is the second round of clips, uh, some of our favorites from the last year. Thank you so much to all of the guests that that came in and chatted with us. These conversations were awesome, and these all of the conversations were yeah, awesome. all of the conversations we had this year. Uh, the clips that we've pulled out just uh, stand out for us, and we wanted to to share once again. Yeah, of course. If you want to go back and listen to them, all of these episodes are on spec.fm/podcast/design-details. If you're new to the podcast, we've been doing this for two years now. This is episode 180. But welcome, 79, 179. 179. I can count. I uh, said it earlier. So those are all on Brian our website, listening. spec.fm, uh, along with other podcasts to help designers and developers level up. We've been a network for a year and a half. Thanks so much to everyone that's listened this year. It's been awesome. Uh, right now, we're taking a little bit of time to enjoy the holidays. Travel. Travel, uh, see our family, hang out with friends. So this is the second of three Best of 2016 episodes. Before we get into this one, we, of course, have to thank our sponsor for our making it possible. Our best sponsor 2016. Our, our best and basically only sponsor, thank you so much, uh, Wayno, for truly making design details possible. Wayno is a full service agency who makes incredible products, incredible websites for just some of our favorite companies. Like, it's our favorite people making our favorite websites for our favorite companies, and that's nuts. Wayno wants you to join them. They're looking for designers here in San Francisco and in New York, looking for product designers. They're also looking for a design intern for 2017 here in San Francisco. If that sounds like you, uh, just go to their website, ueno.co, U-E-N-O dot C-O. Scroll to the bottom of their website. Uh, They have all the links there for the jobs and applications. Of course, tell them we sent you. Uh, In the meantime, check out their Twitter account, their Instagram, their Dribbble. The Wayno team has done an amazing job of pumping out work that you can get inspired by and learn from. All the links are in our show notes. Thank you again so much to Wayno for sponsoring this episode and making design details possible. Thanks again to Wayno for sponsoring part two of our best of episodes, episode 179. And to kick things off, we're going to be starting with a clip from our episode 152, Maniacal Easy Bake, featuring Beth Dean. And the reason I chose this clip Uh, is because I really felt nostalgic when I heard her stories. She talks a lot about the 90s in this episode. It's amazing. You hear about mad balls, easy bakes, creepy crawlers. These were all things that I didn't know what any of these things were. I didn't know anything about I don't know anything. Mad balls, though. Brian was born in the 90s, so he knows nothing about the 90s. Brian Snow. She also has a crazy backstory. She started off um, working in a diet patch scheme company, which is just ridiculous and fascinating to hear about. Um, The other reason I like this episode so much is because I was really bummed out that I didn't get to meet her in person. I was super sick when this episode was recorded, and I remember being upstairs laughing because I could hear the episode being recorded downstairs and thinking to myself, she sounds awesome and I want to meet her, but I can't. Um, So Beth, if I ever... I know, because I was dying upstairs. But Beth, if I ever meet you in person, (laughs) I feel like I kind of already know you. (laughs) You sound pretty chill. (laughs) You sound pretty chill. So let's do it. Yeah, so let's get into it. This is episode 152, Maniacal Easy Bake, featuring Beth Dean. Crazy. Okay, so you learned to code super young. Yeah. Um, so I made like music sites and stuff. And then when I was in school, 
It wasn't something that they really like taught a lot of because it was pretty new. Um, so I took a class in like Flash. I took one in Macromedia Director, which doesn't exist anymore. But that was how you would do a lot of like CD-ROM games or just really like any interactive CD-ROM thing you would do through that. But at the time, um, it was like sound and animation, which was really cool. So I could like make little games and stuff in it. And Director was actually like pretty powerful because at the time, I don't think ActionScript had come out yet. So like Flash wasn't sort of like javascript is now um so i was doing that kind of on the side in school while i was like drawing and stuff and it was fun seeing your stuff come alive in this like frankenstein kind of way and then when i finished school i was like oh i have a lot of student loans and i don't want to draw greeting cards and that's like the only option here because american greetings is here and i noticed that like my friends who are web designers don't live in their parents basement so maybe i'll try that okay how did you start getting paid to do web design then uh, so it took about a year after school because believe it or not, the job market in Akron, Ohio was not like thriving for no. web design. I know I it's so shocking. Um, and my friend's dad, Akron, Ohio. what's that city famous for? Uh, the Black Keys. The Black Keys. Yeah. I went to school with their brother, uh, who like art school, the guy who got like a Grammy for one of their album covers. I just remember him for walking around with like a boombox on his shoulders all the time. I was like, what? what? Uh, showed. <laughs> but he was actually a really nice guy. Um, what a showed. He just liked the boombox. But um, yeah, my friend's dad uh, somehow had an affiliation with a diet patch company, uh, which was like a multi-level marketing scam, which if you're not familiar, is basically like a legal pyramid scheme. Uh, and they wanted somebody to do data visualization for them because it turns out that to most effectively scam people, you need this data visualization to tell you where specifically to have people like sign up. Like you need them to sign up through a specific person uh, so that the person way at the top of the pyramid makes money. So they needed somebody to make like software that would visualize this. Um, so I became like their person that did that and did all of their um, websites and their banner ads. So I was making flash banner ads for Herbal Viagra, uh, his and hers. They had lots of fireworks. Um, and the diet patch, as far as I could tell, was just like caffeine uh, and people would get rashes from it all the time. Holy shit. Yeah. How did you feel working there? Uh, it was hilarious until, uh, I mean, they had like their own in-house mad scientist and he would try and bribe us to like test products with pizza. And I'm like, I'm not that desperate. I might be like a recent college grad, but I don't want pizza that bad. And he, what? he would try and get you to do, like take herbal Viagra in exchange for, or just, there was one thing that was like, I think like an energy thing and it <laughs> smelled like, uh, I don't know if your dog ever has like an anal gland issue. Like it smells pretty <laughs> bad. It smelled just like that. Uh-huh. It's like, I am not drinking that, no, but thanks. they made, they made like some other stuff too. But, um, yeah, he like freelanced for other people. And so he was working on like a magic mushroom patch for some company in Amsterdam. And I think like an amphetamine one. And I was like, I don't, trust anything coming from you you're probably gonna blow us up that dude sounds awesome uh i think he was addicted to painkillers <laughs> too, <laughs> because his pupils were always like really dilated and i mostly felt like i don't know fool and their money are parted you know if you think like you're gonna turn your life around with a diet patch scheme like so be it but we like the engineers and i kept this log called like wacky comments from all the customers which is like what it sounds like and this woman wrote in uh one day and this is like the straw that that broke the camel's back for me she said i went through the change of life about a decade ago but i started using your patch and i got my period again what should i do and i'm like Go to the doctor. <laughs> this is right not away. healthy. 
Like, we cannot dispense medical advice. That's why, like, they called it nutraceuticals because uh, the FDA doesn't regulate uh, nutritional supplements. So you can, like, make any claims you want about it. So that's when I was like, okay, fun's over. Even that seems like it should be illegal, being able to circumvent that. Yeah. Yeah, it's super. I mean, I think that you can get sued for fraud depending on, like, how outlandish your claims are. But you don't really have to back things up. You can be like... Maybe this will, you know, solve all of your problems. Maybe it won't. <laughs> but if you send us six easy payments of thirty nine ninety nine, yeah, exactly. Uh, they even had like a cruise and stuff that they would take people on and like give away a PT cruiser. Yeah, shocking. That's well, not still that, in business. That's like offensively bad. Why would people want a PT cruiser? <laughs> <laughs> you can pay to not go on the. Okay, cruise. think about who the demographic for a diet patch is. That's fair. You yeah, have a good point. There are people that really wanted a purple PT cruiser. Mm. Yeah, free car. You can sell it. Yeah. So at that time, were you like, where was your head at in terms of designing things? Were you is that like your passion? Did you love it? And no, I hated that. Um, but I was getting to play with Flash, so I was like learning it a little better. And then in my free time, because like there's only so much design you have to do at a diet patch company, I would make like icons. That was right when um, Firewheel Studio was getting big, which is the people who uh, it's Josh Williams. So yeah. he made yeah. yeah. He did like pack rat and all that. I signed up for Facebook so I could play pack rat. Crazy. Yeah. Um, so that seemed pretty cool. And I was like, oh, maybe I can do like illustration on the web. So I just made like icons for everything on this stupid diet patch company website. Like we had like a Western themed event. So I made like a cowboy boot icon. It was just like drawing. Uh-huh. Once I found something else I could move on to, I did. And I wound up working for a small agency. Uh, but the irony of that was they were the only agency that did illustration for American Greetings. They mostly do everything in-house. And I did not want to do greeting cards, but every time they ran out of web work, they would make me draw greeting cards. Oh. Yeah, I did one for oh, like Halloween once. taking extra long. Sorry, guys. I, I had a stint working <laughs> on holiday card like personalizers, and I – like, I got to work with a lot of those artists. Yeah. I don't think anyone wants to do that. No, no, they don't. But I made, like, one Halloween one that had, like, uh, it had, like, googly eyes in it. It was, like, a monster, and you could shake the card, and the eyes would, like, move around. Yeah, so when that came out, I bought, like, all of them in the area. <laughs> and so I would send them out for every holiday, like, have a spooky Arbor Day. They were so successful, the company made you make more. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I worked there for a while. And then I actually left to go work for American Greetings, but not making cards in their, like, interactive department. Uh, so I would... In Ohio? Yeah, yeah. So there's, like, you know, limited options there. So they had, like, American Greetings makes the greeting cards, American Greetings Properties, which was, like, Care Bears and Mad Balls and that kind of stuff. And then there was American mad Greetings balls? Interactive. What is a mad what ball? What's a mad ball? Uh, that was another weird 90s toy. It was like this weird squishy little ball that had a monster face on it. And then sometimes you'd squeeze them and it oh, would look like those? came out and stuff. They were really oh. gross. Wait, yeah. what would I didn't know out? that they were called. Mad balls, yeah. What would come out? Uh, like snot or something. Gross. Yeah, they were pretty gross. <laughs> Sounds the pretty 90s fun. was a weird time, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Every um, kid's toy was gross. That was like the whole thing. Yeah, there were a lot of those like weird like mad scientist laboratory kind of toys. Yep, and, like, and you could like make gummy spiders or something. Yes, I was just gonna say creepy crawlies. Yep. You could make like the gummy centipedes. Hmm. Yeah, they're really cool. It was a good time to be a kid. Holy shit! I and they would this. give you your own oven. Yeah, it was like the Easy Bake Oven, uh, like the maniacal version of it. I guess I was just playing with rocks or something because <laughs> I don't know well, any of this. This would have been like. Really early 90s. I mean, like 90s. you would have been like an infant. No. Aren't you like 91, 92? 92. Okay. 
Yeah. So you would have been like an infant. <laughs> yeah, I was playing with rocks or something. I don't, where was my mad ball? <laughs> yeah, I made my first website two years after you were born. Hey, I <laughs> made the cutoff. <laughs> you did. You did just barely. Wow. Um, yeah, I went there and worked on just like how people would do e-greetings. So it's kind of funny to be at Facebook now because Facebook's sort of destroying them. Like nobody needs e-greetings because they can just wish people a happy birthday on their Facebook wall. And they also don't need like an address book that they pay for because it's all in Facebook. Uh-huh. Then why does my mother-in-law always send me e-cards? Oh, old Actually? ladies love that stuff. They pay a lot of money for it. My like favorite, least favorite project that I ever worked on was this thing, um, which hopefully they don't come back and sue me, called JackieLawson.com. And Jackie Lawson was this little old lady in the English countryside who, when she retired, took up watercolor painting. And one day she wondered, what would happen if I animated these watercolor paintings? So they had these terrible animations and she turned them into e-cards and American Greetings bought them. Uh, but they didn't want anybody to know because they wanted her to like maintain her authenticity and all of that. So they kept it very, very secret. And so my job with JackieLawson.com was to take their very, very, very crappy website and redo it all with HTML and CSS, like no inline you know, styles or anything, but leave it looking exactly as garbagey. And it still looks exactly the same today. But she had like this dog named Chudley. It was like a golden retriever in a lot of the cards. It was like her mascot. And they lost their shit when the dog died. And they found out that like little old ladies were making pilgrimages to this village where she was from. Because that's what they do. And the town had, like, erected a statue and memorial to this dog. And they were like, the jig's going to be up. And I'm like, why don't you just buy her another dog? Golden retrievers aren't that hard to come by. Like, call it Chudley 2. <laughs> Chudley Part 2. Yeah, Chudley 2. Uh, or just, like, get her a puppy or something. But the website still looks exactly the same. They haven't changed it except to add a Facebook like button to it. Oh, shit. And people still buy it. I think they're, like, six ninety nine a card or something. And, like, people still send them. For an e-card? Yeah. That's like a Netflix subscription. Yeah. Almost. Well, um, on a repeating basis. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Do you send, how many do you send a month? But I think probably Two. the best job at American Greetings was they had sound designers, right? But their job was to mostly make like knockoff versions of popular songs so they wouldn't get sued so they could use them in cards. Oh my so you'd God. You'd have to make popular songs, but slightly off. Commercial music is an interesting field. Yeah. Like the kids' pop version of yep. a song or something. Yep. Which they would actually license the mechanical rights to it, but they wouldn't actually like buy the reproduction rights or the. Yeah, yeah it's like when you rights. go and get a bad karaoke version of something. Yeah. What are mechanical rights? Mechanical rights are like the lyrics of the song and the actual like sheet music kind of thing. So like you can reproduce it then, but you can't. Uh, so like you you can do your own version, but you can't play the original version kind of thing. Yeah, and you can't perform it live. Yep. Either. Yeah, so that's kind of a wacky job. Um, How long did you stay there? Uh, I was there for about a year. I was actually, my job title there was like UI engineer. I was mostly doing development, like uh-huh. front end of. Um, but then I started caring more about like UX kind of stuff. And if you wanted to pursue that with any degree of seriousness at the time, the only places that had enough money to invest in like a usability lab were um, banking and insurance. So then I left to go work for Progressive Insurance where I was until I moved to San Francisco. I was there for like two and a half years, I think. And so I did all of their um, billing and payment stuff and I designed like all of their first mobile offerings. Doing, okay. So that's when you started getting into like the more product stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I was doing that, but they also like, you had to code while you were there and it was weird because they like, 
everything was in .NET. Oh, God. Yeah. And to do our user test, we had sort of this like JavaScript spoof version of the app. Like it looked like it rendered exactly like the actual app, but everything was JavaScript. And like if you, you know, breathed on it, everything would fall apart. It was very brittle. Um, and so we'd have to do we'd have to do that. And it was kind of a weird place to work because they didn't really see that things were going towards mobile. So, like, a coworker and I made their first, like, mobile site that wasn't, like, strictly payments. That was for all policy servicing, like, in our free time. Uh, and we threw all of the style sheets um, on my personal server because they wouldn't give me, like, a sandbox to do it. And they wouldn't give us any devices to test. So then I, like, went and opened my policy with it on, like, test devices at the Verizon store. Uh, and so, like, once it was done, then I was, like look like you can have a mobile website all you need is some like css and like oh, just put this in production and then they then they did and i would not be surprised if most of their like billing revenue that isn't recurring comes through mobile our next clip is from episode 125 way back in april featuring vanessa cho uh, she was a design manager at gopro who came up through several several of our other conversations so we we had to finally get her on the show uh, in this clip we talk about the hard truths of design management uh, for anyone that's been listening to the show this year, they know I'm very interested in challenges of being a good manager and the skills required to manage. Uh, and Vanessa tells it like it is in episode 125, Back to the Drawing Board, baby. It is. It's well, so I easy. Mean, it's easier way. I'm pro great at it. I'm not like pointing <laughs> fingers, but <laughs> yeah, it's that's something that, that's stuck out to me lately. Is like we tend to talk about how much it's our job to be dissatisfied, so we just are as dissatisfied as possible publicly and just shit on other people, and that's terrible. Yeah, it is. I, I think I think the thing is is that it's a very quick spiral down, you know, and uh, and that's it's you kind of need those cheerleaders and those champions. It doesn't have to be the manager, but it's just like those cheerleaders and champions in your design team are around to help you reflect on what is the positive piece mm -hmm. of it. So for context, yes. uh, and some of our listeners will know this, uh, the reason we found out about you was from Charlie Waite, who we had on the show, uh, and Jeff Smith has talked about you multiple times. Uh, and so that's how we came to know you as a manager. So I have lots of management questions because at least I have this context of you being a great one. <laughs> you know, I paid them to say those things. Obviously. Yes, absolutely. Obviously. I just wanted That's to make part sure. of being a great manager is paying people exactly. to do what you want them Knowing to do. Knowing who to pay. Absolutely. Pay everyone off. Yes. Pay everyone off. Yes. Uh, how do you know when it's the right time for someone on your team to move on? Like oh. when they're no longer, uh, either they've outgrown the team or the team's outgrown them. How do I know? Yeah. And that's a pretty hard situation to be, I feel like, where people are growing and changing all the time. Teams and companies are growing and changing all the time. And sometimes those the needs of both sort of butt heads, right? I, I would say it's it's a given, you know, yeah. it's that especially, I mean, my experience of being at a manager at a company for eight years, it's a given, you know, it's just that people come in and they have certain skill sets and, you know, either they're growing much faster than the rate that the team is growing or the company is growing faster at the rate. It's just like there's going to be deltas that actually happen. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I feel about management is just that my responsibility, you know, it's just like is to my project is the team and the different people that are there. And the way I think of it is, is that any person that is on my team, I'm I'm responsible for their career. You know, it's just like I tell them it's just like your job here is to build a great portfolio and it's a better portfolio. You have more you've gained more skills 
uh, when you walk out than when you first came in. And that's my my responsibility. And, uh, you know, from my manager standpoint, it's really, I don't turn off when they leave and walk out of the door. You know, it's just, I can't turn, I care, I think, too much about these people. So as soon as you, you can build the trust with your direct report that I'm here for your best interest and I'm going to tell you when your best interests are better served somewhere else and you can build that trust, it, it becomes a really a, a good conversation. And that happens all the time. I mean, it happens all the time where a direct report will come to me and say, I'm, I'm interested in this opportunity, you know, it's like within the company and we have a good conversation about if they're qualified for it and maybe they're not qualified for it. But then I also tell them as it's like, you might be qualified for the same title somewhere else. You know, it's like, let's go after that if that's what you want to do. That's really fascinating, but I immediately am thinking, how do you balance like the needs of the company mm-hmm. versus that person's needs? Like maybe, you know, you're on this personal level, you understand that maybe somebody could be more successful somewhere else, but yeah. is there ever the tug of shit, we actually need designers at the company to do to the keep work functioning and do the work. <laughs> How do you balance that, right? Well, I don't I mean, so one I think a good lesson that I learned at Walmart is because we were I was there for eight years, you know, it's just like, and we had some amazing times there, but there was a, there was a time that it was somewhat of a struggle. We had new management come in, you know, it's just like strategically we made some changes, but at that point we had, I had a very strong management group and I felt that we were all coming to the work because we were loyal to each other, that we felt that we had to stick it out and, and I felt that I was doing things because I was fearful that people were leaving and it wasn't a comfortable situation. And so what I recommended to them is like, dude, we can't do this. It's like all of us, your job is, you know, in your next month, what you should do is you should circle a job, a company that you really is your dream company. You know, it's just like the job that you really want and you need to go and interview for that job. Uh, and they're like, what? This is kind of crazy. And I was like, just go do it. You know, it's just like, go do it because I don't want wanted to be out of loyalty, you know, for anybody. And and really what happened was is that it was incredibly empowering because one of three things happened. Either they got the job, you know, just like, which is great, you know, or the other thing what happened is they didn't, they weren't qualified for the job, you know, just like, and then they realized what they had to work on. Or the third thing is they realized the company wasn't that great. You know, it's just like, it really wasn't that great. And then they came back and they were more recommitted to the job and realizing what was great about those things. And that really helped shape how I manage people that are interested in moving on. You know, I I say, it's just like, listen, I need to know what motivates you. What are you interested in? Where do you want to go? And I'm going to tell you first and foremost how I can make that happen. In this case, at GoPro. It's just like, there are many things I can do. You just need to tell me what it is. But if you can, if I cannot do it at GoPro, I'm going to be very honest with you and tell you and then see if there are other places where you can do it. Because I do believe, I mean, you're right. It's like I have to look for the interests of the company. But I do believe that the the general approach is if I do what's best for the individual, it will be the best for the company. Has it has that always been the case? Do you feel like where it, it kind of works out that way? Are there cases where you need designers yeah. and letting someone go? even if it would be in their own personal well, interest. Well, I mean, the, the good example was one of the, I, I'll never forget it. I remember one of my directs came to me at Walmart and it's like, hey, Vanessa, I need to do a one-on-one with you. And you know, if someone calls for a one-on-one on that day, you're just like, what? Hey, I mean, we need to talk. Yes. <laughs> I was like, and I remember walking to that room 
And he's just like, so. And I was like, are you leaving? And he's just like, yeah. And I was like, you can't leave. And he's like, what do you mean? You've been promoting us to actually go. And I was like, I was just joking. You know, I was like, what do you mean? You can't leave. You're supposed to go and figure out that we have a pretty awesome job here and then you're supposed to come back. And he's like, no, I, I really want to go. And it was an amazing job to head up, you know, a user experience team there. It's just like, it's something I would not have been able to give him. And he went and he did it and he did a phenomenal job. But did he come back after a year? Absolutely. You know, it's just like, I, I mean, that was where it really hurt, where actually I don't think it was the right thing for the company, but I was very happy for him. And then when he came back a year later, it was absolutely the right thing for the company. This next clip comes from episode 136, All Bridge, No Apple, with Rasmus Anderson, who is one of my coworkers, and he's just so much fun to work with. He thinks about things on kind of a different level than many people do, most of them metaphorical levels, and he's been wonderful to spend time with and get to learn from. He's been a big hero of mine for a long, long time, so getting to work with him, he's, he's actually a big part of the reason I went to Figma, so... This clip is him talking about the bridge and the apple, which is what we named the episode after. And it's about kind of design versus art and kind of utility versus expression. And it it's something that we've talked about a lot at Figma. It's something that we've talked about a lot on the show. It's something that uh, I think is a pretty important conversation just in terms of how we define our craft. And uh, I think Rasmus put it very well and very Swedish. So here's Rasmus Anderson with All Bridge, No Apple. It does the thing. All right. Yeah. Good. So the approach, the approach we're taking is sort of like, let's just do whatever makes most sense and be as pragmatic as possible right now. So we're using SVG. And if you have a high resolution display, it will render, you know, high resolution. It will rasterize in a high resolution. If you have a low resolution display, it will rasterize at a lower resolution. Right. And sort of, at some points, like, you know, we've had some issues with, we draw an icon that has three lines in it, horizontal lines. And, for instance, Safari, when you use uh, the background image center, it centers it on, uh, let's see, what is it, virtual points, and it doesn't care about, like, the physical points, if I remember correctly. So you actually get, yeah, and, and Chrome is clever about that, so it's sort of, like, uh, centers And this correctly. is why you support Chrome specifically. <laughs> <laughs> No, but <laughs> it is an interesting detail. So neither of them do, really do the right thing, though. It's, there's no right or wrong here, getting my hinting, but that's the approach we're taking right now. And when it comes to typography, right, that's a whole different conversation, right? Like, you know, we use points sometimes, which is in a web browser defined as like one point to start this like 72, you know, DPI, but then you have scaling factors and it's, it's just a mess. So we sort of like, we have 11 pixels as interpreted by CSS typeface, right? And if that's too small, maybe you just like scale your resolution in a really crazy way, or you can assume it because it's in a web browser. You keep saying uh, designers bordering on self-expression and artist artistry. Yeah. Would you call yourself an artist? No, I think that would be way too pretentious of me. <laughs> I don't think the sort of okay. design that I that I do like part of it and part of the software engineering that I do as a hobby is like it's self-expression definitely it's like sort of hobby style like I have an opinion and here it is and like what do you think right Rasmus and, Artisan <laughs> I'm a pixel artisan <laughs> I wear leather things and I drink coffee out of uh -huh. handmade yards uh -huh. that is not correct handmade um, yards yeah <laughs> it's medieval things you know it looked like a horn so <laughs> we have this conversation between like 
in lack of a better term, like architect on one side of the spectrum, right? And then you have an artist on the other side of the spectrum. And sort of the artist is like, here's my view, here's my thing, take it or leave it, right? Like, if you want it, take it or experience. If you don't like it, move along, right? Go to the next thing. Um, then over the architect side, using that again as sort of like a label for something, you have what we're building is is solving a purely utilitarian need, right? And self-expression comes very, very far down to the list, if if at all, on the list, right, of priorities. Um, and I think the design that, that we're usually talking about and what you guys talk about in this show is like, Mostly in, in sort of like in the middle of this and, and, and often bordering like toward the art part of the spectrum, right? The extreme of the spectrum. You know, someone asks like, oh, can there be like design without art? Could there be art without design? Like, you know, it's not a question that has an answer. In my opinion, art is like an expression of an idea or something that is, uh, that is subjective. It's an expression of self at some level. At some level, yeah. Or at anything you have, right? That... That might not be a, based purely on rational facts or logic or anything like that, right? And that's very important. It's like a big part of what makes us human, right? And we <laughs> we should never ignore that. Um, but then there are different kinds of design. There's the sort of design that is just here to solve a problem, right? And mm -hmm. imagine I saw someone made this drawing, and I should remember his name, but I can't. What's that presentation somewhere? Um, and he explained like sort of product design and and the idea. And now you gotta have to. Imagine this. So there's this little guy, a little stick figure on the on the on the side, right? Of this empty canvas. And now imagine that he or she is sort of like looking across the other side of the canvas and there's some water in the center, right? And this person can't get over the water. And on the other side of the canvas, there's a red apple. And it's a tasty red apple, right? So at this point, we have sort of the problem or the need or the want or whatever. This person wants the apple, right? But there's water in between, can't get there. And now a utilitarian product that does a really good job puts a bridge over that water and the person walks over the bridge has the apple. Failure mode here for a purely utilitarian product would be to build a bridge that is all super elaborate, maybe it doesn't look like a bridge even so it takes a while for a person to realize that it's a bridge. And maybe it's it's a you know twisty, crazy bridge, right? There's like, my bridge is an, ex, you know, an experience. And this person is just out for the apple, right? It's like a fucking bridge. Right. And, and this person comes over and passes through this like maze of a bridge, gets the apple and like, oh, that's the worst fucking bridge, right? But this is all, I think this is all with the uh, disposition that the person is just out after the apple. But there's a different kind of product, right? Which is that of there is no apple. There is only this elaborate bridge. And this person is like, huh, that's an interesting contraption, right? And experiences the bridge. And I think most video games are the bridge without the apple, right? Hmm. Or if you will, the bridge is yeah. the apple. Yeah, I see it. And then we have something in between. The bridge is the apple? <laughs> yeah, it has exploded in here, actually. Um, you know, these are two extremes, and a lot of design that we do fits somewhere in between, right? Like It's an Apple-esque bridge. <laughs> yeah. You know, I go install, like, I don't know, uh, some calendar app or whatever it might be, right? Like, I use the Google Calendar app on my iPhone. I think it's great. And in that scenario, I go for the first thing. I want a bridge that's as straight as possible. Obviously, a bridge, give me the fucking apple, right? But then you have things like like games, or actually, we used that example. You have things like uh, chat applications or camera editors, right? Like photo editors. Again, you know, example for, for Android or iOS. 
And and suddenly you have something that needs to both provide a, a path to the apple, right? Of, of like editing a photo, changing the saturation or lightness or whatever. But it also needs to have some sort of personality and expression. And it's like, this is from the author's perspective, right? This is what I believe is a good way of developing photos on your phone, right? And here's someone else who does like, no, I think this is the way to do it. And sort of like, there are a bunch of photo editing apps out on the different app stores, right? And they're all like, there are a bunch of them. They're very equal in terms of popularity and sales and everything, right? And that sort of, I think, indicates that the middle spectrum is very much like a, a legit thing, right? Where you have a bridge that is an experience, but it provides utility in form of getting to that Apple. So is this user experience versus user interface? <laughs> Have you guys seen Sebastian DeWitt's uh, yeah. like his tweet? <laughs> he yeah. keeps labeling random photos as user experience and user interface. Yeah, One yeah. is like a watermelon with like a swimming cap and the other is a basketball in a glass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> where do you fall on the spectrum? I, I, I know where I fall. Um, He's a carpenter. <laughs> He's building the house. <laughs> well, I, I definitely fall closer toward the straight bridge just leads to the apple. I think it's it's just what makes me personally like more excited. Like, can I build a really f- effective bridge? And can I, can I build it in such a way that there is some elegance to it? And I think this is where like I find a lot of satisfaction in art. And this is a different kind of art form, right? Like the satisfaction in, in like quality and the satisfaction in knowing that something runs really well. Like a watchmaker finds a great satisfaction in the mechanics of the watch, right? That is hidden away in the watch, right? And a lot of people find satisfaction in like owning a watch like that, right? Or being a, you know, a motorcycle engine or even for some people are into guns, right? Like there's a lot of this sort of satisfaction and appreciation and artistry, I would say, about sort of like the execution or something or the inner the work. The craftsmanship. The craftsmanship, if you will, yeah. Or the elegance of a solution, right? If it comes to computer code, it could be the elegance of an algorithm or the simplicity simplicity and the elegance and the simplicity by creating something very like you know expressive right this next clip comes from episode 144 coca kool-aid featuring stuart scott curran in this episode stuart talks about his time when he worked at coca-cola and the ethics in designing and trying to manipulate teenagers to drink sugary drinks i love that this year ethics in design and also like psychological manipulation kept coming up over and over again yeah. these are big themes yeah and coming at it from the point of big co sugar beverage is really fascinating we also yeah. talked later in this episode which didn't make it in this clip uh, about the the manipulation in like making something a breaking headline or something like that yeah on so CNN it's kind of scaring people yeah um, it, was, it was a really interesting conversation and I really can't think of someone who's been on both sides of the lines as much as Stuart. Um, He was really able to speak from experience, which really helped to give it a lot of weight. And this was one of my favorite episodes. Yeah, so let's get into it. 144, Coca Kool-Aid featuring Stuart Scott Curran. Like Sprite, um, I did the majority of my work on Sprite and there was like two separate people that bought a Sprite. There was like moms who would buy it in multi-packs from the grocery store because they perceived Sprite as being quote-unquote more healthy. Yep. Which, of course, uh, My parents not. definitely did. Right. They were like, what? But it's not brown. It's, it's not, not acidic. Right, so it's clear, right? Yep. It's clear. It doesn't have like any like, weird colors in it. 
Uh, it doesn't have caffeine. Um, so from that, so it must what, be better for so you. So it must be better. Like, um, it won't keep my kids up at night. Right. Um, so there's that. And then there's teenagers who buy it. Like teenagers love it because it's got a perceived higher level of carbonation. Huh. Um, I'd buy that for sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't has the same as everything else, but that's that's how they think about it. Interesting. Um, and so we'd, we'd like think about um, ways to kind of like, it's a bullshit phrase, but like tell that brand story, I guess. Like, Why is that a bullshit phrase? Because um, we weren't really telling stories. We were selling like sugary drinks. How does that compare to telling our story at Intercom? Um, because I feel like at Intercom, like we actually have like a story to tell. We're not just trying to like, uh, you know, hack our way to to growth. You know, Coca Cola. It was just didn't matter what you were doing. It was like, did you sell more cases this month? And what? And at what you some did last level, month? it's it's hurting the people you're selling to. Exactly. Yeah. Which, Whereas Intercom. Yeah. It's supposed it's, to be a great flipped. experience that helps yeah. people. It's, it's, it's the opposite. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we would we would. Um, so we would tell kind of like a similar story in two different ways. Like we would, uh, to teenagers, we would talk about basketball and we would sponsor the, uh-huh. the slam mm-hmm. dunk contest and we would have LeBron and Kobe all over it. It's amazing how well you did your job because I know all yeah, of these all things. all those things, right. <laughs> but on the other side, for the moms, we would be like, well, buy this multi-pack and save the the caps and you can contribute to refurbishing a basketball court in your local community and you know so there's like a whole way to like flip that stuff Uh, you sound like perhaps you're a bit jaded of that particular kind of branding and marketing uh i felt like it was well first of all you were like ethically it was difficult for me even while you were there yeah I mean, like at Nike, we were trying to help athletes perform better. We were trying to inspire more people to play sport, you know? Um, like, it's almost like the opposite of Coca-Cola. Yeah. Like, and, you know, like, you get the whole thing where it's like, you know... Coca- people enjoy it. People enjoy it. It's part of a balanced diet. So it's, you know, it's mm. not... Coca-Cola is not the thing that makes you overweight or diabetic, right? So... um I would say drinking the Kool-Aid, but that seems inappropriate. Uh, yeah. <laughs> drinking the Coca-Cola. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was that was kind of difficult. Um, Can you share? It, share like I, that? I think is a very fascinating yeah. place to be in, where the Kool-Aid is around you, like we're, the Coca-Cola. We're yeah, the Coca-Cola. We're telling this brand story. We want the world to know what our mission and values are. But then you're sitting there internally, maybe having this this ethical battle of mm-hmm. of the work you do every day. Yeah, uh, which was difficult, you know. Like I think, just like on a fundamental level, like as designers, like we have to make decisions about the things that we do and the products mm-hmm. that we work on and the impact that that they have in in the world. And it was it was hard to sit there in meetings and talk about like you know. Um, this brand campaign that we're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on and we're targeting like, you know, 15, 16 year old kids. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you know, 
That How was, did you sleep that, at night? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I didn't. I left and I went to <laughs> I went to CNN. Um, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't awful. Like we we worked on a lot of interesting things. We worked like with a lot of cool people. There was a lot of good people there. You know, a lot of really talented people. Um, and it was a lot of it was fun. Um, but like long, long term, it just like kind of made me a little bit un- uneasy. Would you say that in general, brand and marketing is uh, manipulating people? Um, I think it depends how you do it. It um, addresses psychology at some like it has it to, right? I think it, yeah, I think it depends how you so how you want to dress it up. Right. It depends on how you phrase it too. Like even saying manipulate people yeah. has a negative connotation, right? Right. It does. Like if you if you walk into a grocery store, um, there's there's like a whole strategy around what you see at certain certain places. Like when you walk into the store, you may see something with Coca-Cola. And it's just like a generic, maybe a cooler or something. It just kind of like plants the seed. Like as you walk around, when you get to the the section that has the spicy food, you'll see like some more, you know, there'll be a picture of like a family around a table eating dinner and they've got Coca-Cola there and they're having a great time, you know. Um, so like there's a whole kind of like strategy about like what you see at certain times. Um and that's definitely like manipulating people to a certain extent, right? It's interesting how like manipulating objects doesn't have a negative connotation, but manipulating people does, even yeah. though like I'm reading uh, everything is. Have you read the book Thinking Fast and Slow? I'm just getting into I've it. I've never even heard of that. It won a uh, Nobel Prize. No. Pulitzer? Pulitzer. <laughs> a bit different. Wow. Way off. Uh, Pulitzer, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Uh, but there's a section I'm, I'm still early in the Nobel prize for books, but there's a section where essentially uh, our, the environment around us subconsciously changes the decisions you make much further down the road. It's called priming obviously. And that's what you're describing. And that to me is terrifying because um, if you don't know about it, it's like the ignorance is bliss kind of thing. But when you know about it, you start to look at like, I am being primed all the time to buy shit. Yep. Well, that's totally. how conversations work too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so for you, do you think that the, the ends justify the means? Like if the psychological manipulation is going towards something that you believe is good, it makes you're helping people. Yeah. If you're helping people, if that's, if what you're doing is ultimately Mm -hmm. to, to their benefit, you know, sure. Almost tricking people into making the right decision. Yeah. I think even I'm presenting it probably more hostile than it should be. I don't, I think that you can dress it up in all sorts of ways right yeah absolutely i mean it's um yeah you can approach it all sorts of different ways and we did you know like we did good stuff like we we built like skate parks for kids you know um we did all sorts of things but it's still kind of like you know at the end state you know you're still uh selling sugary beverages at what point did you decide you'd had enough you know, there wasn't anything. There was just like over time. Yeah. I think we had, we had done some really good work. I had gotten to the end like of some projects. Um, and then, uh, CNN called me and that I felt was like a chance to kind of like get back to something that hopefully had was, had some benefit to people, you know? This next episode came from Claudio Guglieri. 
who sadly no longer is with us in San Francisco. He died. <laughs> by moving to Seattle. Yep. Uh, in this, we... In this, Basically death. In That's, this clip... <laughs> went to Microsoft. Yeah. In this clip, we talk about personal style and honing and exploring and refining personal styles. Uh, Claudio continually impresses me with his ability to design... He impresses everyone. Shut up. Products and visuals and only prototypes. One. No, only I am impressed. Uh, and having him on the show was awesome to really dig into how he's developed his ability to design products. So with that, let's get into this clip with Claudio Guglieri. Respect the craft. To be honest with you, Don't Freeze Up came out of wanting to explore with ice. Um, oh, so, so you went the other way. I went the other way. The, the previous article was called What Makes You Special. And, you know, as Flowers. part of it, right, it was like two flowers that are really different. Um, the end of that article was a little bit about, you know, having self-critique and being self-aware of where you stand and, you know, what as a designer you can improve. Like, for example, you were saying like, oh, I always use the same uh, typographic treatment. Mm-hmm. I I do that a lot too. So I'm just trying to get, you know, I, I'm aware of it. I'm just trying to get out of it. I always um, try to get out of that. It drives me insane. But it's like, man, I can make pretty decent compositions with this. Like, I can do it so quickly, too. But then you see some of the people doing something, and so you're like, oh, there's something mind-blowing about how they're doing this then. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that I have a bag of tricks. And, you know, I found that through other people, they would say, oh, that's your style. Or I feel like I've seen that before. And I'm like, oh, that that hurt me. It's like, man, am I just repeating myself? Uh, no, that is not pragmatic. And maybe I'm being really effective at communicating certain messages. But uh, especially for my website, I just wanted to try something new. This is really interesting. See, I, I, I feel bad now because I, I told Dan Petty the other day he had a style. And he was like, what? I have a style? You think he has a style? Yeah. Yeah. What's his style? Photos cut out on white with like a giant drop shadow. And big text. Yeah, <laughs> but that's now like b- way before this drop shadows thing. He he used to do something else. Like he has these crazy globe Iron Man explorations. I think I admire anything that's not what I'm good at. <laughs> yeah, right, totally. And so I look at someone. It's comparative appreciation. Yeah, but it's me just acknowledging that I'm not good at, or I haven't taken the time to be good at certain things, like right. taking my own photos and putting them on my own website. Instead, I say, I don't know how to do that. Okay, what can I do in HTML and CSS? Because I know how to do that really, right. really fast. Oh, you have your tools. Yeah, I have my tools. And that's what's inspiring to me about looking at what you're doing is how do you get outside of that bag of tools? Or how do you add more to that bag so you have a little bit more diversity to work with? What, what I think is, you know, I admire people that, you know, they do stuff that I, I don't do. But there is... There's one line, which is when you see that stuff and it's achievable. It's like, totally. I'm not doing that, but I could. I see how I they just did that. didn't think about that. Mm-hmm. And exactly, you see through, you're like, I know what you've done there. And it, I feel so bad because I haven't thought about that. It's like when you, uh, when you see like a magician perform and you suddenly understand how they did the trick. And you're like, well, duh. <laughs> Should I be a magician now? Yes. That's the th- that doesn't make you a magician because when you try, you still use your bag of tricks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'm. this is like my inner critique. Um, you know, seeing amazing, talented designers using the same tools that I use, but coming up with totally different results is like, uh, why? And, you know, and then you bring it back. It's like, is it because I always use the same grid? 
should I just start changing small things through my process and that would lead me somewhere else? Um, I'm working on that. <laughs> How? Um, exactly by changing the the crown of it, right? So like changing your baseline. Maybe I've been using this 10 pixel baseline for too long. Let's go with eight pixels. You know, let's let's make sure. Good man. <laughs> <laughs> but let's make sure this top bar is not like a, you know, like a 10 pixels uh, type of number. So it's not going to be like 10, 20, 30. Why don't we do 66? What's going to happen there? It's a bold, that's a bold number. I know. <laughs> Would prefer 64 if you don't mind. Yeah, thanks. Please fix. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like you change things that are invisible to the user and you build up on that and trying to analyze like, oh, I know I always do this. Let's just try to do it a little bit different. But it's really hard. Like it's extremely hard. Can we self-critique right now? Uh, sure. What do you feel like is your one area of weakness that you're trying to get better at? Hmm. Is there intrinsic value in changing? Is this change that will act? like specifically achieve something that is better or is it just change for change's sake? I think the hope is that you will, uh, you will become better at your craft. Okay. Uh, Understand you, it more in some way or? You're going to be able to like a little bit, you know, stand higher and see not only what you can do, but all the potential possibilities. Change your perspective. Yeah. Not, not just change your perspective, but get all the perspectives. Got it. Hopefully. Um, yeah, so uh, self-critique. Um, many things. Um, I feel like I need to improve at translating layout, static layouts to motion. I feel like working with motion is not a matter of, you know, having a beautiful layout and then just moving it as you scroll. I feel like there's something about thinking about motion first and then translating that into a design. Um, and maybe my my problem is that I I really focus on the the details, the execution of it, but on a really static way, where then you see some of the website and it's, it's hard to explain through a JPEG. It's just the experience of it uh, you know, that conveys the design. That is something that I'm trying to improve through prototyping. Yeah, with Framer, I was going to say, Framer is such an easy way to explore that. And there's at least some tangibility to the fact that it's just JavaScript. Like it's not out of reach, right? Like whatever right. you prototype in Framer, you could, yeah, with a little effort, put that on the web, right? I feel like that, and there's a big, you know, this whole like should designers, should designers dream, should designers <laughs> should they design or should they code? Like you know, I don't think whenever someone is asking me, you know, like is going through this process of like I'm about to put a lot of energy into a prototyping tool, I want to make sure I choose the right one. Uh, should I learn Framer? Um, I only chose Framer because I knew, again, a little bit of like, you know, JavaScript. But I don't think it hurts. You know, and this is what I'm trying to tell people is like, are you willing to spend two weeks on one? And then maybe if you don't like it, change? Because learn to code is not about, you know, learning how to ship a website, you know, that is perfect and responsive and whatnot. It's just about learning the concepts of it. And then, you know, JavaScript or ActionScript or whatever, it's it's just the same. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, sorry, designers. That's a code. great answer. I think motion is probably one of the, the main things I see a lot of people focusing on now. This next clip, we caught up once again with Michael Lomans, who was also on the show in 2015. 
Uh, in this clip, we talk about what makes designers, especially new, younger designers, the most effective. Michael's been building products at Instagram and then Facebook for several years now, and he has a ton of experience to share. Plus, he's just a fun guy to catch up with. So let's jump right into the clip. This is episode 169, Invisible Unicorns, featuring Michael Lomans. I think that might be part of uh, an answer to this next question, which is like, now that you've been at Instagram and then Facebook uh, for several years, you've seen the design org grow massively, especially in the last year. Like, what do you notice people that come in that end up becoming quite successful? What are they doing in their first year that made them successful? Is it is it that attitude? Is it networking? Is it that they got lucky and landed on a team that happened to ship a product that blew up? Like, what what have you noticed that helps designers really level up in that first year to get quite comfortable and actually, I don't know, have quote-unquote impact at a meaningful stage? There's a couple of very specific things like the kind of being open to what like whatever is being presented to you or like this being available in response notion is it completely removes ego from the conversation. So like it's not about you, you're part of this bigger thing now and and you're going to do some great things and it's unclear where they are, but that's one of them. So like completely taking yourself out of the equation and thinking more about the, the the team and then the bigger picture of like where you are landing. The second thing is, I think what's really important um, is to talk to as many people as possible in the first like couple of weeks that you're at a company, not just on your team, but across teams just to get people like different takes. And I think it's important for companies to be set up to kind of empower that. So like if you come in and um, you want to talk to the, um, I don't know, like one of the heads of partnerships or something, that's probably really important from like a design perspective because that's not a person that you're normally going to be talking to. Like there's no way that you're going to be in a room together unless you're going to be talking about some like marketing website for partners or something, right? And just like getting their thoughts on like what their job is and how they look at it could be super helpful. Um, if you're at a big organization, like just going across teams, like, you know, like a company like Apple doesn't, I, I don't think that they do this, but like, how awesome would it be to go talk to someone in hardware when you're like, I don't know, like you just came in and you're designing iPhoto or something. Yeah. You know, this, cause there's someone who's going to build that portrait mode and like, you want to like start using that in iPhoto and you want to think of cool shit around that. Unless someone top down, I guess says, Hey, we need to get this end to end portrait mode stuff solid. Y'all need to go sit together. Mm -hmm. That's when you're probably going to be talking to these people. And so if you have the opportunity, just like start talking to people and start getting different, um, viewpoints of, of what, um, what it means to be at wherever you work. And then I think the third thing is probably consistency. It's not that someone who grows into a company is like, has one stroke of genius every year. It's probably just this consistent effort of being there allowing people or like coming up with ideas that are focused and move your and move your team forward and being able to explain that in a good way and then once you i think once you do that a couple of times that has some like leadership traits that that kind of elevate you 
within an organization and you don't have to like launch some 100 million daily active user app out of nowhere. But like if you were part of the process that got that thing out, that's actually like the the important part there. It's not the fact that it's out the door. It's like how you how you acted in that creation process. And then beyond that, it starts becoming more and more natural to take on these roles. Start start with an anecdote. Like I um I had a pretty hard time taking on like kind of that natural leadership role when I was still at Instagram and just like didn't feel I don't know, there was like some kind of like mental block that just kind of kept me from it. And completely taking myself out of the context and changing it and getting into a new space where I didn't know anything and therefore like my mind was kind of clear. I didn't have any like preconceived notions. Like I hadn't seen this company go through three years of craziness. Um, When I joined Search, I just like sat back for like two months just listening to people and and then learning how do different people think about the same problem and where is the signal amongst the noise and where can we push this forward and after like these two months I was like oh I kind of have this understanding of like this is probably what we can do and then you do this next step mm-hmm. and you work on that for two months and then you realize that there there are all these other low we call it People use the word low-hanging fruit all the time, but it's actually <laughs> probably better to say logical next steps in this process. You know, like there are five items of low-hanging fruit. No, there are five logical next steps. And then you prioritize those. And then there are a couple of more logical next steps. And then sometimes you need to like do a major breaking change or like you have like this long, like this, um, like long one, this one-year project that kind of works orthogonal to the work stream of iteration and logical next steps. And then eventually you try to converge on those things. And once you do that, magically, there are logical next steps. <laughs> How do you think of uh, the incentive structures around long-term projects like that? You mentioned that Facebook is on this like half half review cycle, so every six months. Yeah, I think But what if you have a year's worth of work before you're actually going to make meaningful progress? I think it's important for for an organization to make it clear that that's fine. It, it's not just for designers. Like, imagine you're you're an infrastructure engineer and you need to like move everything over to a new, better database system. That's not going to be done in like half. It's not going to be done in like two halves. That might actually take two years or something, right? Like, especially at like certain scales. Um, there was this one project um i don't know how long it took but we talked about it for a long time which was basically moving all of instagram's infrastructure over to facebook Mm -hmm. that only happened two years after we got to facebook yeah and i'm fairly sure that from like somewhere in the first couple of months did these conversations start about how we were going to do that um and and it's important i i'm fairly sure that the engineering organization there is like set up to kind of um, judge and appreciate that quote-unquote impact on a half. Um, but then, yeah, there's only one celebratory moment for that person, yeah. right? Like, yeah. And it's not like they're magically going to like skip like three levels and become a director or something. Yeah, because you launch this one thing. No, it's like over time, like, like as you were going through this project, your job was not just to to write code, but it was also to talk to people and and get more and more important stakeholders involved to get there. 
Like if you're just a person writing the code in, in the background, you're probably going to grow less in your career um, or less at least internally in your career. Well, you, might, you might grow as an IC or something, right? Like, yeah, but like, like even, even as like an IC eventually, like you'll want to be in the room and like explain to other people why, um, as, as a design IC, you want to explain why do you make these nah, I'd rather talk to computers than people. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. And then you, and that's a natural cap. Like you, you impose a natural cap and that's fine by the way. That's completely okay. Um, this goes back to the, like, if you make, if you want to make a decision like that and, um, and you, you just want to get really, really good at executing, that's awesome. Like, um, the only thing that people around you then need to make sure of is that you are always able to do that. So if you're like a amazing zero to one designer who can, um, like, in a year, build a new a, a new app over and over again with crazy ideas and 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 like ruthless execution. Then you just need to make sure that your manager or the team around you sets you up to do that. And one, yes, that's their job, but also you need to like sometimes keep them in check on that, right? Because it's really easy to to then just become a resource and then an underappreciated resource or there's not enough conversation and you just feel underappreciated. A pixel pusher. Yeah. You become undervalued because you're effectively a machine. Yeah. But like you don't have to be right. And I think (laughs) that's like, again, like there's a lot of conversation and a lot of um, context that is like very important. This last clip of this episode was from episode 166 with Mei Li Koo and Annie Matushak. It's called Ambient Struggles. It was kind of a different episode than all of the rest of ours in that it was mostly about learning and what the future really holds and and how we make decisions. And I thought that was kind of a crazy episode. My favorite part of this episode was discussing It Depends, which is something we've said a lot in many, many episodes. It's just like, it depends as how something ends. I think we did an episode last November with Randy Hunt from Etsy. And we talked about like making a show called It Depends because that's the answer to most questions. And they talked about why it depends and how things are structured and how we have to learn what the root cause of a decision was in order to make a better solution to it. Um, and the metaphor specifically is about cutting the ends off a piece of meat because you have a small pan. And it's, it's just so thoughtful. And these two are working on some really interesting things. And uh, this was easily uh, the most meaningful episode for me out of this year. Like I felt like I got the most out of it. It, it helped me change the way I think rather than just how I, I do my work. And that was very helpful to me. So here's uh, Meili Ku and Andy Matushak from episode 166. <laughs> Isn't it depends also the most frustrating outcome? I, it's the answer to everything. I mean, I think that's one, that- of, one of the one of the things that I I love about research, and I think it's part of the probably part of the problem that not as many people are attracted to thinking about things in the long term and thinking about long term research is precisely that problem. Most people just want a simple answer to something. I mean, if you look at politics, right? Everybody just wants you to just say the thing. It's like black or white, and it's this dichotomy. But most things in the world are not like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think, I think it's very likely that that all of us have had the experience of like in school having passed a test on something. It's like, yeah, I was able to like do the thing. Do I understand it? <laughs> I yeah. get no. it. I know everything <laughs> yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah, actually, that's the amazing thing. I remember times at Apple where, like, there's, again, basic, I don't know why trigonometry keeps on coming up, but there's, like, basic <laughs> trigonometry that was, like, not happening among a group of incredibly advanced engineers, which is mind-blowing. But 
they don't have to use it all the time. So people just look it up again until they understand, you know, but they, I'm sure they all scored very well on those tests back in the day, but that doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean anything. So if the test question, if all the data says the person knows the thing, um, what does that mean? Well, it might mean that they can perform the skill and that's different from, do they understand the concept? I really like the story about you and this, uh, and, and tan and the tangent. Oh my gosh! Yeah, uh, this is a good tangent. This is this, uh, this, this, this is this is hard to do yes. on a podcast, actually. But um, yeah, I, I I learned this year about uh, the the geometric meaning of tangent, and I had never known that before. I only knew it as being defined as sine over cosine, or alternately, the tangent of an angle is defined as the ratio of the uh, opposite uh, side length over the adjacent side length. And that just like wisdom passed down from the math gods. Sokotoa. Uh, but actually there's a beautiful <laughs> definition that all of you are going to be very frustrated that I can't give to you right now because it's visual. But, but if, we if can link it up, to it. We can link to it from the notes. <laughs> this is helpful. Yeah, we can yeah. put it in the show notes. Yeah, and it's just so stupid. Like, Brian, I, I, can you like, draw I'm, this and put it in the show notes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm mad. Like I, I was, I was deprived. Like this is beautiful and this makes sense. And instead I was made to memorize a formula mm -hmm. uh, and I happened to succeed in memorizing it. And so like later on in life, I was able to like do that thing, but this is beautiful. Uh, and it had a number of consequences as well. Like as soon as I saw that, I saw a whole bunch of other things. Uh, and I'm, I'm so furious that I was deprived of, um, this way of understanding trigonometry. And, and this one example really represented like the entire way that I learned math in high school. And what's which, the thing? What's that? What's the thing? What's the tangent thing? Uh, I, I can't tell you. It's visual. Um, we'll, 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 give you, we'll give you a link. We'll <laughs> I, give you a link. Yeah. I, I, you know, we can draw it. Basically, like the, uh, on the unit circle, there there is a length that corresponds to the tangent of a particular angle. And it is it is literally the tangent uh, of the hypotenuse of the triangle uh, to the circle. Uh, that tangent to the x-axis, the length of that line, uh, is the value of tangent of the angle, which is beautiful and makes sense. And uh, I'm just furious. So in case in case anybody has trouble corresponding the word beauty to what we're talking about, oh. um, I think the kind of beauty that we're describing is the kind of beauty that happens mentally when something finally makes sense to you in a deeper way. It maps to a model. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Why was it named tangent? I mean, like, that's the thing. Like, if you don't, if you don't know, the, if, if you don't know this interpretation, it's just arbitrary. You are mad. Holy I'm so shit. mad. Yeah. Well, because it represents the way that math is taught. Yeah. It's memorization. It's a rote memorization. Right. When it's actually really pretty. It's beautiful. It. Uh, oh man. <laughs> I like have this question bubbling, but I, I haven't formed it quite enough. But it. It's something along the lines of, oh, shit. I think I know the answer. But is it important to understand or like, is it enough to have the skills to do a thing and do that thing well and get paid to do it and live your life? Or is it important to understand? I think of like, mm. mm -hmm. should you understand I'm why I'm instead of to, how? I'm trying to think, uh, uh, yeah, or does why well, matter? So I'm not this back to design. Like I, I know, I, think I, I, I have can an answer repeat the design process over and over and over again. Right. Right. I can design screens for the rest of my life. I, I think but I do I understand I what I, I think? I have an answer okay, for you. Okay, okay. So I think basically, like you know, as a human race, we can take we could have the underlying assumption that we understand everything now. Like everything that we lay out in front of you, the world as it is today is great. We know everything. Everything we know today is fact. We're we're awesome. 
Or we can say, clearly there's a couple things that aren't quite that great. We could invent new things to make the future better. So if you're going to invent new solutions to things, then you need to actually usually understand the reason why you're doing things a certain way. So it's a little bit like that story of the people that cut the ends off the meat for the fry before they put it in the pan. And like several generations later, they don't know why they're cutting the ends off the meat to put this thing in the pan. And I'm it turns so confused. Out, I don't know what that means. You know, okay. So <laughs> I haven't the, heard this story. Oh, you haven't heard the story. story. Okay. Is like- the story is that there's, there's somebody, a daughter who cuts the end, end off the meat, or let's say a son for the fun, who cuts the ends off the meat before putting it in the pan. And at some point in time, like their child says, why do you do that? And they said, I don't know. I, do, I did it because my parents did it. And then they ask their parents and they say, oh, well, I did that because actually the pan was too small. Right. So there's, they, mm-hmm. didn't, they didn't need to do that. They could just get a better pan the next generation or like a larger one, I should say, and, and just cook it that way. But so unless you understand the concept or the reason why you're doing something, it's much harder to innovate like on the solution. But it always, mem- it always maps the model at the time. When the thing was created, right? Right. So if you know that the thing was created with this mental model and then the mental model mm-hmm. of the human race shifts, then you then you understand how to shift the solution. That brain pan. But if you're just, if it's just, yeah, the brain pan. <laughs> exactly. It's like sizzling. Um, <laughs> but if you don't understand the underlying reasons, then you'd never get there, right? You just, you would just repeat a procedure without thinking. And then you're a computer. There will always be new problems. Right. And so we'll always need new solutions. Hmm. Not that I believe them, but like, is that important to keep coming up with new problems so that we can just? Oh, keep we're not coming them? up with them. I mean, the, the world is coming up with them. Uh, we're learning new ways to understand. There, there, there will be new diseases. Yeah. Uh, there will new. There will be new urban problems uh, because maybe our cities are getting denser, or maybe because we don't have cars on the road anymore. And so, like, how are we going to adapt the cities to deal with that? Oh, wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) Can we have that problem? That'd be a nice problem. There there will always be new problems. And like, it's not, it's not like we're inventing them. Like the problems are are meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. The problems will keep arising. Uh, My question for you is how do we as people, as designers, as engineers, make sure that we're working on the right problems that the world puts in front of us? And that's a great question. I think one of the things I've asked myself is... And this sometimes gets called like the five whys. Um, I've never heard like, that phrase. You haven't heard the five whys? I've, I've heard like who, what, when, where, why. I've no, never heard the five whys. It. It's, it's really good. Yeah. So anytime that you think of something that you want to work on or you see a problem or you see something happening, you ask yourself why. And you take that first explanation and then ask yourself, why is that happening? And then you repeat that five times until you get to the underlying problem. Interesting. It's like an engineering postmortem. That's where I learned it. And then you work the other way, right? Then you say, okay, well, now that I understand the root, now let's work forward and talk about what we're going to do. Mm. So okay. Th- then there's a couple of different things that come into play, right? Like what is your area of expertise? Like what can you contribute? All of that types of things. Can what if you get can- one of the whys wrong? What if one of your assumptions is invalid? <laughs> It's probably going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably going to happen. And what, what, I mean, what's cool about that is that if you decide, like, well, I'm going to look at the root underneath that, then at some point in time, you're going to figure out that you were wrong. Especially if, if you go into it with an open mind and actually listen to the people that have maybe been involved with that problem for longer than you have. That was episode 179. Thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone who was a part of this episode and all of our other guests who weren't. This was a fantastic year and these were some of our most meaningful episodes. 
thank you, especially to Wayno for sponsoring this entire year for us. It's been pretty awesome. Wayno hasn't been sponsoring the podcast to try and sell anything. They don't measure a return. They just want you to check out their work, be inspired by their case studies, learn from their dribble, uh, get some laughs on their Twitter and Instagram. What an awesome group of people. You should join them. To learn more, go to wayno.co. That's U-E-N-O dot C-O. They have all their job listings at the bottom of the page. Uh, of course, if you're an intern or a junior designer, they're hiring interns for 2017 here in San Francisco. Be sure to apply. Tell them we sent you. Once again, thank you so much, Wayno, for making this episode and this show possible. And we'll see you next week. Nope. That's not how the outro goes. Wasn't Star Wars great? Star Wars are great. Most satisfying movie of 2016. Second.